Our first scripture reading this morning is out of the book of Jeremiah. Um, And though Jeremiah is filled with uh, plenty of warnings, all all these times when the Lord is calling Israel back to himself, the the various sins and things going on that he's calling them back from, there are also passages in Jeremiah, like the one we have in front of us this morning, that are quite hopeful. And, And they picture a future where God is going to do something new and something's going to change in the hearts of his people. And, and you'll see here, it's this, this, this lovely, uh, hopeful prophecy that's coming forward. But Heather's going to come and read it for us. And this will lead us into our time of confession. Heather. Jeremiah 31, 1 to 9. At that time, declares the Lord, I will be the God of all the clans of Israel, and they shall be my people. Thus says the Lord, the people who survived the sword found grace in the wilderness. When Israel sought for rest, the Lord appeared to him from far away. I have loved you with an everlasting love. Therefore, I have continued my faithfulness to you. Again, I will build you and you shall be built, O virgin Israel. Again, you shall adorn yourself with tambourines and shall go forth in the dance of the merrymakers. Again, you shall plant vineyards on the mountains of Samaria. The planters shall plant and shall enjoy the fruit. For there shall be a day when the watchman will call in the hill country of Ephraim, Arise, and let us go up to Zion, to the Lord our God. For thus says the Lord, Sing aloud with gladness for Jacob, and raise shouts for the chief of the nations. Proclaim, give praise, and say, O Lord, save your people, the remnant of Israel. Behold, I will bring them from the north country and gather them from the farthest parts of the earth, among them the blind and the lame, the pregnant women and she who is in labor together. A great company they shall return here. With weeping they shall come, and with pleas for mercy I will lead them back. I will make them walk by brooks of water in a straight path in which they shall not stumble. For I am a father to Israel, and Ephraim Ephraim is my firstborn. We're continuing our series in Galatians this morning, uh, but we have the special privilege of having Randy Palmer, who's one of the ruling elders, uh, a lay elder here at Resurrection. He's going to be preaching, uh, but before he comes to do that, we're going to invite Evelyn forward. Uh, We're reading in Galatians 4. It's on the back middle panel of your bulletin. You can follow along there, Evelyn, if you would. I mean that the heir, as long as he is a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything. But he is under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Well, good morning. Uh, On Tuesday next week, a week from Tuesday, some of us will be celebrating something that happened more than 500 years ago. On October 31, 1517, Martin Luther, some of you may recall, nailed 95 theses, or short statements, to the door of the Catholic Church in Wittenberg, Germany. 
He was challenging the practice of selling indulgences, which supposedly would enable you to gain forgiveness or entrance to heaven for himself or others. Johann Tetzel, you might recall, uh, had this saying, when a coin in the coffer rings, a soul from purgatory springs. That was reprehensible to Luther, as it might seem to us as well. Luther's thinking stemmed partly from Galatians, from Paul's teaching here, and in particular that it is a false gospel which portrays redemption or salvation by any other means except by faith in Jesus Christ. That includes, of course, it's being false if you say you can buy salvation for yourself or others. In fact, Luther said that Galatians was his favorite book in all the Bible. He said, quote, the epistle to the Galatians is my epistle to which I have wedded myself. It is my Katie von Bora, and Katie von Bora was his wife. Before he realized the truths of Galatians and other parts of the Bible, particularly justification by faith, Luther was a miserable man. He was enslaved, chained. It was as if the chains fell off when he realized the simplicity of the gospel taught here in Galatians 4, that redemption is available through the work of Jesus, not through our own works. I want to go through this passage in the hope of reminding you or showing you for the first time the glories of this gospel. It's not simply a history lesson, though we can certainly learn from history. My hope is that we will be able to avoid some of the traps that the Galatians found themselves in, that we will be able to kindle or strengthen our faith, that we will be able to rejoice and to walk in the confidence of being God's children. My desire is that if you've never put your faith in Jesus, that this will make you think this is a bargain you should never turn down. And that if any of you are wavering, that you will realize what a tragedy it would be to walk away from this good offer. I pray also, my hope is also that we will be ourselves better equipped to explain to others, particularly those who themselves may feel entrapped, this story of redemption. So I have four points, slavery, redemption, adoption, and heirship. Heir spelled H-E-I-R, not A-I-R. First of all then, slavery, uh, and we start in verse three. In the same way we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. There's much discussion among commentators, among faithful theologians, as to exactly what this means, this being enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. This passage almost certainly relates to what Luther experienced, and I think it relates to what many of us in the 21st century, in 21st century Canada believe and practice. I will try to explain what it means, but lest we get lost in the details, it's useful to remember that what God promises is redemption from this slavery and becoming adopted as God's sons and becoming heirs. That's the good news story that emerges. Now as to what this enslavement means, it may simply be being required to fulfill all the Old Testament rules and regulations. 
from do not murder all the way to what you can wear and what you can eat. Did you know there are more than 600 commands in the first five books of the Bible? Under Christ, that changes. The prohibition against murder and the moral law stay, stays, but the ceremonial rules on sacrifices and clothing, of course, disappeared. But even the moral law, as we saw last week, is impossible for us to fulfill. Ben pointed out from Galatians 3.10 last week, cursed be everyone who does not abide by all things written in the book of the law and do them. That's all of us, isn't it? We all sin, we all rebel against God. And whoever practices sin becomes a slave to sin, as Jesus said in John 8. I wonder, do you feel enslaved by sin? Either by a particular sin or a general pattern of sin. You feel you just can't resist. Jesus came to redeem us from that sin. But the enslavement described here also uh, appears to encompass something more, something the Galatians were experiencing. In their case, people were trying to convince them that you needed Jesus and the Old Testament, the Jewish rules and regulations, including circumcision. Jesus' sacrifice was not enough. They may well also have added lots of human rules and regulations, even beyond those that were in the Old Testament. Paul refers to human rules and regulations in Colossians chapter two, where he uses the same term translated elementary principles. Colossians is a few uh, books later. Colossians two verses 20 and following, he says, if with Christ you died to the elemental spirits of the world, why as if you were still alive in the world, do you submit to regulations? Do not taste, do not handle, do not taste, do not touch, according to human precepts and teachings. These indeed have an appearance of wisdom in promoting self-made religion and asceticism and severity to the body, but they are of no value in stopping the indulgence of the flesh. These were extra things, you see, that were layered on, required of the Colossians, human precepts, as it says, human precepts and teachings, and that's what Martin Luther experienced. It may seem hard to believe, but before his conversion, Luther felt that he had to whip himself. To what avail? He felt he had to whip himself. That's exactly what is described in Colossians 2, 23. Self-made religion, asceticism, and severity to the body, but they are of no value. He traveled to Rome. Luther traveled to Rome and climbed the 28 so-called holy stairs on his knees, saying a formulaic prayer on each one in the hope that this would free his grandfather from purgatory. He confessed sins for hours at a time, never sure he had done enough. And indeed, before his conversion, he never had that peace with God that he sought. Listen to what he said. If anyone could have gained heaven as a monk, then I would indeed have been among them. I lost hold of Christ 
the Savior and Comforter and made of him a stockmaster. That's someone who holds you in stocks. I made of him a stockmaster and hangman over my poor soul. Luther was tormented. He was enslaved until he realized the truths of Galatians that we don't get to heaven on our own merit, but on the merit of what Jesus did for us. Does any of that resonate with you? Does that sound like you? Do you see the Lord as this harsh judge flogging you, as it were? Or instead, do you see him as the one who is gentle and lowly, who invites you to come to him to find rest for your souls? Do you think he loves you? Have you told him you love him? A number of you have come from a Catholic background, and perhaps some of this sounds like your background. I would suggest that the sort of enslavement also afflicts some Protestant churches, maybe some that you have been part of. If we add to the scriptures, you see, if we add requirements for salvation that go beyond what the Bible requires, we are at risk of doing what the Judaizers were doing to the Galatians. In such situations, we too are at risk of portraying Jesus as the hangman instead of the comforter and the gracious savior. Now it seems clear that what Paul's first priority was in this passage, Galatians 4, was to refer to those who were adding to the gospel. But I think it's fair to say that this enslavement to the law may also apply to others who are not of a Christian background, who are trying to achieve salvation according to another religion altogether, as Colossians refers to it, a self-made religion, perhaps one according to the spirit of the age where they call good evil and evil good. There's a sense in which every religious system puts you in bondage. So that was a lengthy discussion of enslavement, but I think it's worth having set up the bad news so that we can then see how good the good news is. So let's turn to the next point, point two, redemption. Turning back to Colossians 4. But when the fullness of time, Colossians 4, verse, verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born of Mary, and that thereby guaranteeing God, uh, Jesus' uh, humanity as well as, of course, his divinity. Born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law. So why did God send forth his son? It was to redeem those who were under the law. Whom does this apply to? We know from other parts of the Bible, of course, that Jesus came to redeem both Jews and non-Jews. So in other words, all of us. Even though Galatians as a whole was occasioned by Jewish practices. Romans 1 and 2 refers to all mankind knowing what is right and wrong and having God's words written in our hearts and needing salvation. We all need redemption, don't we? Jews and non-Jews, that's why he came. And this redemption is, of course, available to all of us. So what is meant by redemption? We might think of this word as interchangeable with salvation, but of course it has its own meaning. 
Redemption means buying, paying a ransom for, being bought and taken out of slavery. It's free of charge to us, of course, and available to all of us if we repent and believe. And that is because Jesus paid the price, the price of his own blood, his, li- his cruel suffering and his, his life. And we will commemorate that with gratitude at the Lord's Supper. But I would like to now examine some of the implications of being redeemed. Turn, if you will, to Isaiah chapter 43, one of the most beautiful descriptions of God's tender care. Listen to what God says, Isaiah says in verse one. But now thus says the Lord, he who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not for... Now, what comes next? If you're not following along, you might think, for I love you, or for I am with you, or for I am strong and I will protect you, and all of those would be true, wouldn't they? They could all fit there. But what does he say? Fear not, for I have redeemed you. Now consider why that's important. If you buy something expensive, you'll regard it as precious and take care of it. I didn't realize that Gucci dresses can cost thousands of dollars, but if you buy one, you're unlikely to dig up the compost heap with it, are you? If you buy a Maserati, you're unlikely to drive it over rough roads. And if it gets dirty, you're likely to wash it. Look what God says through Isaiah. Fear not, for I have redeemed you. I have called you by name. You are mine. Therefore, it doesn't say therefore, but therefore, as it were, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. So the I will be with you comes there, but because I have redeemed you, because you are mine, When you go through the rivers, they shall not overwhelm you. When you walk through the fire, you shall not be burned. The flames shall not consume you. I will treat you tenderly and compassionately. Now, in the case of Isaiah's context, the immediate redemption was uh, from Babylonian exile, but it pointed forward to our redemption from sin and its consequences. Now, there's another concept I want to point out. You'll notice that it does not exactly fit the analogy of Someone going to a slave block, buying a slave, setting him or her free, and then saying goodbye. In this case, the Lord graciously keeps us as his own. As we've seen here, you are mine. And that should bring us great joy and comfort because of God's goodness, because he is a good master, because he loves us. We have been redeemed by someone who will provide for us and be with us, someone who loves us. Now, consider what he has redeemed us from. We've seen it's from slavery. I'm going to turn to Colossians 1 for some more description of it. Colossians 1:13 says, "He delivers he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins." So he's delivered us from darkness into the light as forgiven ones, as redeemed ones in Jesus' kingdom. Psalm 103, there's another passage that describes redemption, describes what we've been redeemed from. Psalm 103 says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, 
who forgives all your iniquity, your sin, who heals all your diseases, and now listen, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, who satisfies you with good things so that your youth is renewed like the eagles. So he redeems us from the pit. That, remind, that might remind us of the stakes of what's going on here. Ben referred to them last week. Sin might seem enticing at first, but in the end it leads to death and destruction. So redemption from the pit certainly means redeeming us, saving us from uh, hell, but I think it also refers to saving us from the misery that we might find here in this life. It's worth availing ourselves of, isn't it? Thank you, Lord, for redemption. We're God's treasure. We've been brought into the light, into Jesus' kingdom, forgiven, crowned with love and, and mercy, as Psalm 103 says. Contrast that with Martin Luther's state before his conversion. Contrast that with what we might be if we were not redeemed, in darkness, unforgiven, ruined, or in the pit. So I hope that this story of redemption is something that we can entice in a good way, that we can portray to our children, to our unbelieving spouses, to our friends, this is not the gloom that some people might associate with Christianity. This is the kingdom of light. It's good to be redeemed, to be freed, isn't it? So we've seen slavery, we've seen redemption. Now look further at why he redeemed us. Point three, verse five of Galatians four, to redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive the adoption as sons. I would like to quickly deal with what today might be perceived as awkward. Why doesn't it say sons and daughters? The answer is likely that under Roman law, adopted sons had greater rights than adopted daughters. Paul wanted to portray the best for any and all who would believe in Jesus, women and men. He makes clear that females and males equally have access to this adoption. We saw that at the end of Galatians 3. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or, or, and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. We all have the same access to God and to being his children. Now, consider how this happens. If you turn to John 1, John 1, um, the gospel says, but to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become children of God. What a privilege. And incidentally, it's a different Greek word for children there, technon, which refers to children of either sex. So it sort of proves the point. Now, for those of us who have listened to the Bible for a long time, this risks seeming like old hat. We've heard it before, but consider it afresh. What a privilege it is that God sent forth his son to buy us, to free us, to make us his son and daughter. We are, or we can be, sons and daughters of God Almighty, the King of Kings, if we receive him. That makes us princes and princesses and children of a loving father. That gives us confidence. 
we can go straight to the throne room and rejoice and love and adore and bask in his acceptance. And we can also lay pleas before him. But look, the story keeps on getting better. Galatians 4, 6. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So we're not going alone, perhaps daunted or weak in faith. God has sent his Holy Spirit, the spirit of Jesus, into our hearts to then turn right around to God, to the Father, and cry out in an intimate way, Abba, Father. So Jesus' spirit is in our hearts. He's also interceding for us with the Father. He's doing our job of talking with the Father, and he's helping us to do that job as well. Interestingly, Romans 8 separately refers to Jesus as interceding for us. So when you think of it, you have the Holy Spirit and Jesus both interceding for the Father on our behalf because we are sons and daughters of God. When we pray, sometimes it's simply enough for us to call out Father as if we don't know what to say. I was talking to someone this week who said they just didn't know how to pray and the Holy Spirit can help us groan. Look at how it, how it happens in Romans 8. We described it in the um, assurance of pardon that Ben read this morning, uh, a little bit earlier in the chapter, but another couple of verses, 8, uh, 26 of Romans 8. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought. But the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words. And he who searches hearts, that's the Father, knows what is the mind of the Spirit because the Spirit intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. That's a beautiful thought. So we see, seeing that we are redeemed from slavery, we are sons and daughters, and now for the final point, we will see that we are heirs. Verse seven. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. Now, like redemption and salvation, son and heir might seem like similar words, but each one has a special meaning, of course. We don't just have the rights of sons now, but we also look forward to an inheritance as heirs, to salvation, to a new heavens and a new earth, to flawless bodies, flawless minds, to eternal happiness, at God's right hand to the restoration of everything that is beautiful. But we don't only get that. Remember in Psalm 16, it says we inherit the Lord himself. Psalm 16, verse five, the Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. It's not just salvation and everything else that the Lord gives, we get the Lord himself. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. The inheritance starts now and it runs into the future. What a far cry from what Luther felt and from what you and I might at times feel. What difference then should this make? You've probably read this passage before, but when we look at each part 
It should lift our spirits, shouldn't it? It should make us fairly fly as we walk home or as we drive home. It should enable us to face difficulties, shouldn't it? A tough marriage, a tough marriage of some that we know, an ailing body, an ailing mind, loneliness, concern over money or concern over the state of our politics or over the state of our society, the state of our world. It should enable us to take on new challenges because we have that confidence, new challenges that we had not dreamed were possible. Since we have been bought or redeemed and are precious, then as Isaiah 43 says, we can be sure that God will go through each one of these challenges, negative or positive, that we face. And as our passage here says, we can be sure the Spirit will plead for us with Abba. Should these truths not also make us want to honor God? We can honor God in a number of ways, but here's a concrete example, a sort of test that might help you realize whether you're doing so in this area. Do you remember in 1 Corinthians 6 where it says, where it encourages, encourages us to be sexually pure? It says, you are not your own. You have been bought with a price. In other words, you have been redeemed, what we've just been discussing. And because you have been bought with a price, Paul says, honor or glorify God with your bodies. I wonder if any of you is engaged in pornography or other sexual sins. Are you honoring God with your body? You might be saying, I want to, but I can't seem to get free. And that's where you cry out, Abba, Father, and groan with the Spirit. And where you say to the devil with authority, I am a son of God, now get out of here. Because we are sons of God and daughters of God. Now, just a couple final thoughts. I have a special heart for any of you who might be beginning to have some doubts about Jesus, about your salvation, about God. You might be wondering if it's at all, if it's worth it. I assure you, you are not alone. There are many across Jesus' church in the same boat, and we want to walk with you. However, please let me reason with you right now. I don't know who your mom and dad are, at least in every case, but I would hope that you would see that it doesn't get any better than being a son, of, son or daughter of God himself, a loving and compassionate God. I would hope you would also remember the stakes involved. And I'd hope you would, not, you would see that it doesn't get any better than being freed, becoming an heir, and having eternal life and eternal pleasures at God's right hand but maybe you're not sure. We would welcome a chance to chat. These are the most important questions you can ever ask. Some of you might never have ever taken that step of asking Jesus to redeem you, to be your savior. Remember John 1:12. as many as receive him, he gave the right to become children of God. I would invite you to consider this stunning offer. He promises that if you seek him with all your heart, he will be found by you. You will surely truly find him. Please don't wait. May this be the day that you, can too, you too can leave here rejoicing. Finally, 
May we all be able to rejoice and may we be able to go out with confidence because we are redeemed, because we are children of God and because we are heirs. Let us pray. Our Father in heaven, we worship you. We go straight through to the throne room right now because we are sons and daughters of yours. Because we are princes and princess, princesses because Jesus has made the way possible for us to come to you and talk to you right now. We thank you that your Holy Spirit is here among us and we worship you. We love you, we adore you. We thank you for freeing us, for redeeming us, for buying us, Lord Jesus, with your precious blood at great cost. And we look forward to celebrating that at the Lord's Supper in a few minutes. We thank you that we are your sons and daughters and that we are heirs. Oh Lord God, sometimes we don't know how to pray. Sometimes we feel entrapped and we ask that you will, through your Holy Spirit, groan with us. Holy Spirit, that your Holy Spirit will groan with us and come to you, uh, Abba Father, and that you will be gracious to us. And Lord God, we ask that you will grant repentance to those of us who don't know you, grant faith. May this be the day of salvation because we love you in Jesus' name, amen.